Let's say you're an incident responder and the call comes in. It's 3 a.m. and there's been a major data breach and you're booked on the next flight out at 6 a.m. As you hustle to the airport with your go-to bag, the team already on site is collecting log files and backups as needed so that when you arrive, you can begin your investigation. There are servers that you control and there are servers that you don't. There are routers, there are laptops, there's physical devices that you will be investigating for evidence of that data breach. But what happens when the incident response comes to an organization that's entirely in the clouds, where developers can spin up and spin down new instances at leisure, when log files are not that detailed? How can investigators go back and figure out what happened and when? Well, in a moment, I'll introduce you to someone who is thinking about that problem today and actively working to resolve it. Welcome to The Hacker Mind, an original podcast from For All Secure. It's about challenging our expectations about the people who hack for a living. I'm Robert Famosi, and in this episode, I'm exploring incident response in the cloud. How is it different, and why do we need to pay more attention to it today before something major happens tomorrow? If you haven't been paying attention, cloud security is finally getting critical. It simply doesn't work to say that you can take your existing security and port it into the cloud. For one thing, we're talking about microservices and containers that can be spun up and spun down as needed. And they don't have a lot of detail, which creates some very interesting challenges, such as how do you respond to an incident? So I decided to ask an expert. James Campbell, CEO and co-founder of Cato Security. Cato Security is a cloud security company that provides a platform to our customers to allow them to investigate uh, and respond to incidents in the cloud. Perhaps we should first define what is considered incident response. Incident response is, you know, the, I guess the, um, how do I say, incident response is the topic of, you know, responding to, you know, suspicious or malicious activity that you've detected on a computer system or network. So, you, what you want to do is be able to understand, okay, I have a suspicious detection, you know, is this something I should be concerned about? Um, and if so, you know, what what is causing this alert? What's the root cause and how do I, you know, mitigate it and then prevent it in future? Is this something that a company would sign up for in advance? Or is it at the moment when they go, oh, crap, something's going on, we'd better call in incident response? <laughs> a bit of both actually so the more prepared companies so the kind of more mature ones in the in the security domain usually highly regulated industries they'll tend to to have their own incident response team or their own incident response plans um, that are kind of tried and tested and so when they detect something that is suspicious they'll have a plan or procedure in place to you know act accordingly determine what the actual detection is, is it something they care about, and then this is how we mitigate and move on from that. In some cases, you'll have some companies where oh, it's, it's a bit of a, um, you know, an aha moment. I was going to swear then I shouldn't, but, a, you know, an oh, one of those moments. Um, and 
you know, if it's something that's a bit bigger than they can necessarily handle and they need some extra expertise, they may call upon, you know, like a service like a, a Mandian, a PwC IR, uh, et cetera, so an external consulting firm to come in and help investigate in more detail. Given that this incident response is in the cloud, I'm imagining that James can be anywhere in the world. Or is that not true? It, it can be anywhere in the world. That's that's the unique thing about cloud. That's a different challenge it represents, I guess, or or a different way of doing things, not necessarily a different challenge. In fact, it can actually be a, a savior as well as, um, you know, detriment. So, you know, if you think back in my old days, right, um, you know, when, when cloud wasn't really a thing and everything was on premise, you know, I would literally get a call from a customer, um, you know, next thing you know, 30 minutes, I'm grabbing a bag. I literally have a bag ready to go, by the way. Um, I would literally grab a bag, head to the airport on the flight out, you know, tell my girlfriend, not entirely sure when I'm going to be home. I'll see you in a few days. And then, you know, you go and help the customer on site because the data is on site and you need to actually kind of get hands on to the point we used to do imaging in big data centers and stuff. And it'd take hours because terabytes of data and you'd have people sleeping in the data center, like, which is crazy. Cloud has actually really changed that because, you know, now you can do it all remote. Things happen in minutes rather than kind of hours and hours on end. Um, and it's kind of really changed the game there. But I think the industry is still catching up that it is now different to what it used to be. Even so, I'm imagining that on-site is still necessary. You have hybrid clouds, for example, and you have private clouds. Yeah, abs absolutely. There's, you know, there's more and more kind of cloud native companies coming out and, and organizations. So where all their operations, what that means, where they, they rely on all their operations with cloud technologies and cloud-based technologies. Um, that said, they tend to be the more newer organizations. So kind of uh, organizations that have been around for a while will, you know, tend to always have some level of on-premise uh you know computing environment so you know on all the data center and stuff like that but it is shifting so a lot of the kind of data so important data workloads um you know all the kind of number crunching so to say where you need a lot of computing is starting to shift to the cloud um i think where you know where i guess the last move will be is you know I'm right on right now as I speak to you. I'm on a laptop. You know, everybody's going to have a laptop. Everybody's going to have like a local physical device to connect to the cloud environment, and and largely that's going to remain kind of on premise, so to say, for a little while yet. But um, definitely a lot of the kind of critical data is starting to move to the cloud, and and at a pretty rapid pace as well. I've seen over over my last kind of you know sixteen odd years uh, in cybersecurity. In the past, you would be going on site and doing traditional digital forensics. How is it different in the cloud? Can you even do forensics in the cloud? Uh, the, the cloud um, you know, is a real enabler. Um, there, there's definitely some tricky things in the cloud. Maybe we can touch base on that, on some of the pitfalls of cloud. But I guess I'll talk to some of the positive points, at least at the moment. And some of those are, you know, one, your ability to remotely access the data you need and quickly. Um, the downside to that is it can be quite complicated on how cloud works and the type of, you know, um, kind of infrastructure and technologies that are available. So this is where that, that kind of gray area lies and we can kind of dive into that later, I guess. Um, but if you know what you're doing, it is you can get access to data relatively quickly, whereas physical on-prem, you're literally flying someone out. You know, I did a job once where we had a customer and involved a compromise of 80 different servers, right? Um, in And, you know, we literally had a whole team just to do data collection. And it took us a month to collect that data, like a month. Like, meanwhile, there's an APT group running around the network causing havoc. But, it, you know, that just shouldn't be the case anymore. Um, 
you know, because what we had to do is actually go out, physically obtain the data, bring it back to a central location, copy the data across to another drive, process it one by one with a whole bunch of tools and open source solutions, et cetera, et cetera. And then eventually you come out with a timeline of the the events of, of what's happened. And the great thing about cloud is, well, now I can just grab all that data within minutes um, instead of having to fly people out all over the place. Um, I can use the cloud to process that data in parallel. So, you know, so I can spin up more resources because I need more resources to process the data. I don't have to do it sequentially. I can do it all at once. And then all of a sudden you have a picture in, you know, a matter of moments rather a matter of months, which is that's game changing at the end of the day. With the cloud, it seems to me that there might be more transient data that's harder to capture. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, if we if we if you think about some of the some of the really kind of utilized technologies that are in the cloud, you know, if you move to the cloud, you know, the one thing you're going to try and do is save money. Um, that's one of the reasons why you move to the cloud, right? Is you know, instead of having a metal box sitting there whirling away, chewing resources, um, you know, with cloud you can grow. Uh, and recycle your resources. So you've got auto-scaling groups, so like virtual machines and kind of EC2s, just as an example. You've got containerization as well in serverless environments, um, you know, where, again, you're only kind of using the resources you need. This is great. This is how you should be using cloud. This is how big enterprise saves millions of dollars a year in their, in their basically their IT spend. And they can put that towards other things, which is great. But the challenge that represents, right, you know, I've got... Um, you know, some customers, they'll have containers uh, which are serving their customers. So I'm not, not sure if the listeners are necessarily familiar, but if you have, a, you have a kind of computing kind of virtual machines in the cloud, but you even have a smaller instance than that, kind of a very small computing workload uh, kind of instance called containers, where um, essentially you do kind of you know, very short-lived um, kind of services uh, for, you know, external customers or internal customers and anyway so you have these kind of short-lived uh, systems which live in the cloud and in a lot of my customers they those systems only last for 15 minutes so that's great like you know that's great use of resources that you only need the downside to that is and this is where the industry is starting to slowly mature to this is right okay i had a detection at lunchtime while i was at lunch that something suspicious happened in my container in in this kind of micro system um but by the time i've come back from lunch the system's gone it's right. been recycled it's deleted so how do i work out how do i investigate how do i even get the data in the first place for a system that only lives for 15 minutes like these are the kind of challenges which people are starting to face now with cloud environments, you know, the use of, you know, ephemeral infrastructure, auto-scaling infrastructure. You know, you should be embracing these sort of technologies, but it starts to bring in a new risk, which you didn't have before um, necessarily on the on-premise world. And once again, you have containers that you can spin up or spin down. And it seems to me that with those containers go the data and sometimes even the logs. Yeah, exactly. Like... There's usually some level of logging, but the, the detail in it is so high level that it's really hard to ascertain, you know, exactly what's happened. So you might see there is a suspicious login, as an example. And, you know, you might, if you have some sort of detection technology in place, you might even see there was a file created, but you're not going to know what was in the file, right? You won't know if they dumped out a database and it was in the file and it was exfiltrated. Now, if you're in particularly, you know, part of like a, a regulated industry, you know, what are you going to do when an auditor or a regulator comes to you and says, oh, hey, we noticed you had detection and container and there was a suspicious file. What was it? And then in most cases, people just can you know, say, well, we don't know. 
uh, we don't we didn't have the ability to grab that file and investigate at the time because it disappears. And so, you know, this is definitely one of those challenges people are facing. And, you know, one of the groups that we track at the moment for hacking group, they compromise, um, they, they do like crypto mining and containers and stuff. So seems relatively benign. But one thing a lot of people don't realize is that they'll have a detection for crypto mining and they'll just destroy the system. But one thing this group does, um, they're, they're called Team TNT, by the way, um, is they actually steal uh, kind of cloud credentials, which are potentially sitting within that microsystem, within that container. And those credentials actually potentially have access to the underlying cloud environment, so to server systems and things like that. But you wouldn't know they stole it. You wouldn't know that they potentially gained access to those you know, uh, credentials unless you investigated in some form of like traditional incident response or, you know, forensic-like manner. And so a lot of customers out there tend to, you know, not understand how they're getting compromised through other methods. And it's because they've gained credentials and they haven't been able to investigate and see that the fact that credentials are stolen. So, yeah, so it's quite interesting, you know, the dynamic is it's changing a little bit and, and you know, the adoption of these new technologies has is, is caused that. So might there be cases where legitimately an event has occurred, but after the fact, it's hard to pull all the strings and find out what that event even was? Exactly right. So very, very, very hard uh, to piece together a puzzle when, you know, the puzzle has disappeared. So, well, the pieces I should say has disappeared. Flipping that around, James has examples of successful data forensics in the cloud. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, the, you know, this is, you know, uh, this is part of what we're about at Cato, I guess, is is trying to educate the industry that, hey, actually, you can investigate, you can do forensics in the cloud. and what, But what you need to do is use cloud native technologies to do that. Um, you can't use your old ways of doing things as you did on premise because it just doesn't translate. You know, they're like different size Lego bricks, right? They just don't fit together. You know, people try and jam them together, but it doesn't fit. Um, it looks like a Lego brick, but it doesn't work. And so, you know, people need to understand, you know, what is different about the cloud? How are they using the cloud? You know, and what are the gaps there they need to fill? Now, technology is how you fill those gaps, um, you know, because one of the other problems there is that cloud is complicated, right? Like now I'm a security expert who has to know all about on-premise stuff, you know, data centers, firewalls, et cetera, et cetera, EDRs, XDRs, you know, every, every solution you can think of. And now we're moving, now I have an organization that's moving to AWS, just as an example. And hey, we're also in Azure as well because we have a license for Microsoft. So we're in two different clouds. And we're using, so AWS, as an example, has three different container technologies. It has Lambda, which is serverless, you know, functions, uh, you know, basically discrete tasks that you can do as a one-off uh, without even starting a system in the first place. And it's kind of like, what is this kind of voodoo? What is this like magic uh, that is so different to on-premise? Well, like how is a security guy or girl, I should say, you know, how should, you know, for them to learn how every different technology works in the cloud is, that's nearly impossible. Um, and for each one of those technologies, there are, are different ways or and different levels you can gain access to data, and you have to learn that too. And to do all of that manually would just be an impossible task. And this is where, you know, this is where you should be using cloud to do a lot of automation. And so automation is the key here. And this is how you solve a lot of those problems of complexity and how does this technology work over another technology. The idea is to automate that out of your life 
Because as an analyst, all you care about is system XYZ is compromised. I need system XYZ. I shouldn't need to care that that's a laptop, that's a container, that's a you know a virtual machine running in Azure in Japan. I shouldn't need to necessarily worry about that. I just need access to data to investigate it, to see if it's a real threat and how do I mitigate it as soon as possible. So James alluded to this earlier and I want to follow up on it. There's this gray area of where the data actually lives. Well, yeah, that's a good question. So um, I guess the, this is kind of, Going a little bit back on the previous point is for each of the different technologies, you know, the data is represented differently. So as an example with AWS, there's three different ways you can spin up a container. Uh, and for each one of those ways, there's actually different data sets you would need to investigate in order to understand if there is something you should worry about, something suspicious or malicious happening, what's the root cause, etc. And to varying degrees, you know, um, is the detail of that data. So as an example, you know, in AWS, you can run what's called a Kubernetes cluster. Um, and on that particular environment, you can actually get quite a lot of data. You can actually get like a copy of the container and what's called the node, which runs the container and a lot of log files around it. Um, because generally you have access to the infrastructure, um, more or less. And so you can actually do relatively detailed investigation in that sense. But there's another service called Fargate in AWS and AWS, like absolutely amazing technology. They run the infrastructure for you. You don't need to run the infrastructure. But what does that mean in that kind of shared model and that shared responsibility model is you don't have underlying access to the infrastructure. And so the amount of data that is available to you to actually investigate something has happened is, is a lot, like it's very limited basically. So, and your understanding of, you know, the difference between those two different container technologies, you know, it's very complicated process and, and um, there can be big gaps in, in your ability to actually investigate like and work out what the root cause of something is and, and how to mitigate that. So that's interesting. If it's managed by the cloud, then you have less access to your own data than if it's fully managed by the organization itself. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, this is all part of what they call the shared responsibility model. Um, and this is something which I think, you know, a lot of customers you know, really struggle to grasp with as well. So I think with people moving to the cloud, they'll kind of automatically assume they release some level of responsibility from a security perspective. And while a part of that is true to the physical infrastructure that, you know, these kind of cloud systems are running on, largely you're actually responsible for your own security. Um, and so there's a little bit of a misconception there. Now, through automation, through patching and things like that, these sorts of things are much easier in the cloud. So technically, you should be in a better place once you understand how cloud works, that is. Um, you, know, you should be in a better place to for the cloud to be more secure than your on-premise environment. But, you know, you need to understand, like, what, um, you know, where does your responsibility from a security perspective lie compared to your cloud environment and the particular cloud services they are offering? So, and there's often a bit of a gap there. There's often kind of a bit of misinformation. You know, it's not necessarily AWS or Zero's or Google's responsibility to investigate anything for you at all um, or even provide you the data. So, um, you know, it is your responsibility to make sure you're capturing the right data, you have the right visibility and you have the ability to investigate. So I'm wondering if he's seeing a lot of demand with commercial organizations that are being attacked or if he's also seeing demand from governments that find themselves under attack. It's a bit, bit of a range, really. I think 
the I'll, I'll come back to the commercial side. I guess the nation state side um, is getting a bit more of a light on it these days, obviously, um, you know, particularly in, in light of the Ukraine war, etc. And, and, you know, um, Ukrainians have actually embraced the cloud, which is great, um, you know, to move a lot of their on-premise stuff into the cloud to make it easier to essentially secure and, and um, be more resilient, so to say, uh, against particular attacks. Um, that said, you know, um, because the industry is not, yeah, the industry is still maturing on how the cloud works, right? And so... One of, great, one of the great things about cloud is that you can rapidly adopt technology. And so this causes that shadow IT problem where you're spinning up new services. So you have techies, you know, you know, DevOps guys, you've got, you know, your, your coders, your programmers, et cetera, like your R&D team. They're all spinning up services faster than you can secure them. Um, and this causes a problem. So... So in light on one side, you're like, oh, cloud is amazing. I can adopt new technologies really quickly. Uh, but on the flip side, it's like, oh, crap, but security can't catch up. So, you know, so now you have this problem where you've got a bit of a wild west, really, of systems and services that are spinning up. And a lot what happens there is that those people that are spinning them up aren't necessarily securing them in the right way. And so attackers, particularly kind of nation state side, are taking advantage of things like misconfigurations, you know, poor passwords, um, you know, open S3 buckets, et cetera, et cetera. Um, not understanding how, you know, the firewall policies work in cloud. Um, that can be very complicated on its own and doesn't work necessarily the same as on-premise. And so these sorts of things cause, um, you know, basically glaring holes open in the cloud environments. So, on the one hand, there's the setting up and maintenance of the cloud environments for use. And then there's the other side. The side where the attacker is now starting to understand and use the cloud to attack. One of the things I know the US government's been worried about lately and they've been a bit more vocal, uh, which is great, is that they've seen nation states using cloud resources to perform attacks. So basically, you know, using it to as a command and control almost to perform attacks on other companies and stuff. Because when you're on AWS or Azure or Google, you're kind of blending in with the noise a lot because there's a lot of cloud services out there. So much easier for them to blend in the noise, much harder for the US to respond to something that's in a legitimate cloud environment as well. So, um, so they are taking advantage of it from that perspective. Do we have visibility of everything they're doing in the cloud? Definitely not. Um, and part of that is because people don't, necessarily understand the cloud themselves they're not actually looking they're not actually detecting this activity you know it's very immature still in this space it's growing rapidly and it's getting better but um you know there are a lot of companies or customers out there as an example don't even think you can do anything about a container as an example in aws so we we had a customer once and they said oh yeah our security vendor said you can't do anything about containers so we just never done anything about containers when it comes to detecting anything suspicious and stuff and it's like no actually you can there's lots of stuff you can do um you know it's just it's just a little bit more complicated than you know what you probably traditionally you know would have thought so so people are just not looking necessarily so i've often found when there's a spike in a report of new activity part of me wonders how much of that is just enhanced detection i.e we now know what to look for versus an actual rise in criminal activity. See, I think CrowdStrike released a report recently and they said there was like a twofold increase in cloud attacks. And I think 300% increase in kind of, um, you know, uh, 
hacker's ability to understand cloud and utilize cloud. And, and I've, you know, I think partially that is, yes, they're definitely learning more, but the other thing as well is that we're just starting to detect more. So, you know, that stuff could have already been there. Um, and I guess the commercial space is a great kind of, uh, uh, space to reflect on that and, and how big the state space could be, because, you know, if you have a look at a group like Team TNT is the one I mentioned before, you know, they just do mass scans of IP ranges of AWS, of Google, of um, of Azure, and they look for misconfigured services. And they've compromised tens of thousands. And in fact, they even had, I'm not sure if it's up right now, but they actually have an online tracker, which is available to the public that shows you how many systems they compromise. And there's literally tens of thousands of them. So now you have attackers who can spin up an instance and then spin it back down. Again, this complicates the forensics later if law enforcement, for example, wants to prove that a particular group launched an attack. This isn't hyperbole. James has seen it for himself. What happened to, to us before, we were doing um, a presentation for a SANS conference, and so we were putting together material on compromising containers and how you can do that and how you can use that to laterally move across your cloud state. So, you know, basically use that initial access to gain access to, to wider systems. And, you know, we, we put up a, a honeypot basically. So we put up our own system online. We, we made it purposely vulnerable for the purpose of the demonstration. Um, and then the funny thing is within 30 minutes, the team TNT guys had scanned it and compromised it within that time frame. And, and it was actually really, it was quite funny, but it was really annoying for us because we were trying to create a demo and they ended up actually compromising it. And we we're like, oh, come on. <laughs> so, but that just shows you how quick it happens in the cloud like it literally 30 30 minutes if you've got a vulnerable or open service i bet you it's been scanned i bet you someone's had a go at it um and i bet you the chances are it's probably been compromised but most of the customers we've come across you know just don't have the visibility they need to understand this even happened in the first place which is that's the scary bit so i'm wondering if we could aggregate some of these glaring holes such as James alluded to misconfigurations, which I hear often, and perhaps that's one of the bigger buckets that we can throw these compromises into. Are there other areas that are equally of a problem? Um, definitely misconfiguration is probably the the biggest bucket, so to say. Um, the other thing we've seen as well is you still get, yeah, it's probably more reserved for like your nation state style um, kind of resource activities is is you still get kind of, you know, cloud engineers or engineers in general being targeted by nation states stealing credentials and utilizing those credentials to gain access to environments. And so, you know, they used to be on-prem because we just went in cloud, but now that in those credentials include access to cloud cloud data and, and cloud environments as well. So so definitely a bit of, you know, more of the same there. So spear phishing email, steal credentials, gain access to the data in the cloud. And so that kind of, you know, what you would say the traditional approach of targeting is still occurring, um, but is still leading to cloud compromise as well. James alluded to the Ukrainian situation. So I think 10 years ago, Estonia, it was attacked and crippled. And this was not a cloud attack. They had all of their data on servers and connected to the internet. And it was a matter of just throttling that internet connection that shut the country down. 
Are governments today putting their resources in the cloud? Yeah, well, uh, interestingly, uh, Ukraine didn't use the cloud. They actually had, uh, it's, it's public knowledge, they had legislation or a law that said you couldn't use cloud assets. And, you know, I think that's all of the old kind of, you know, Soviet era kind of mindset, so to say, of of Western technologies. And, and you know, but it's great. They've like really embraced it now and it's, you know, solving a lot of problems for them, which is fantastic. Um, and you've seen, you know, a big shift, especially in the US government and moving to cloud as well. There's lots of, I think the UK government as well has really started shifting to cloud too. Um, and so there's started being a big shift from government to cloud. Um, it might not be the, you know, the super secret data source that, uh, you know, they put in the cloud, but, you know, from a general, you know, running of the government and operational capability, it, it makes a lot of sense for them to use the cloud. And um, a couple of good bonuses out of that come out of it is that once you, you know, if you do a good job of it, you know, you can make your cloud environment super secure, right? Um, it's much easier to maintain like patching, have visibility of your assets as well. So actually understanding what you own in the first place is one of the big problems of on-premise environments in the cloud, way easier, way easier to manage your assets, um, which is fantastic. So you kind of understand where your data is a lot better. You understand how to protect it. Um, you can also do kind of big global controls as well. So as an example, we were discussing, um, you know, misconfiguration. And one of the one of the very easy misconfiguration pitfalls people fall for is like, you know, your Azure blob storage or your AWS S3 bucket with all your data in it is open to the internet uh, and someone found the link. <laughs> and so like something as simple as that is you can actually set global controls to say, do not allow open public uh, publicly accessible S3 buckets, as an example. So you can set these sort of controls at a kind of global level on your kind of cloud accounts. And so you can actually make management of your estate a lot easier. But I guess the the thing that we need to do to get there is, is you know, is do that upskill piece and understand how the cloud works and, and how you're going to utilize the cloud. Um, and then the other bit is just that resilience piece is, you know, you can spin up resources if you need more resources. You can change infrastructure at a click of a button and you know you're talking about estonia attacks you know there's lots of denial of service attacks and things like that as part of that you know in this case for cloud like for you to take down the whole cloud environment you would need a hell of a detox so um you know so you'd be able to manage those a lot better if that sounds like a stretch james actually did that for a client once i did a, a big denial of service with government once um i won't mention which department but um, we were kind of prepared for a potential denial of service. And um, it was, you know, they had a physical data center, a physical data environment. And we actually had to set up two physical links to switch between in order to, you know, basically route traffic uh, that was important in a way, you know, so it wasn't disrupted by a denial of service. And so, you know, to do that, that required like weeks of effort. It was, you know, crazy. Uh, we had to be very well prepared. But when it comes to cloud, you can make those changes or decisions or route traffic, you know, uh, very quickly, very easily um, compared to on-premises environments. So it brings a lot of resiliency to the picture as well, particularly for public-facing government services. So this brings into the picture the cloud providers themselves, such as the commercial choices, AWS, Google, Microsoft Azure. But there's also private providers that maintain their own cloud infrastructures as well? Um, 
I guess the one of the, one of the interesting things we you know one of the topics that come up particularly uh, since the Ukraine war as well, you know I think it goes about saying you know cyber has definitely solidified itself as one of the domains when it comes to you know um, you know an act of war and so you know whether it be to gather intelligence, disrupt uh, or degrade infrastructure and communications etc. And I guess one of the things which is interesting and I guess this goes back to a little bit to the shared responsibility model in cloud is. Uh, and one of the topics is around, you know, cyber and and during wartime, you know, where does the responsibility lie for security? Is that with the government? Is that with the cloud providers? Is that with the, you know, the the actual industry body itself that owns the cloud environment or the account? You know, where does that responsibility So this raises a question of where the responsibility lies, you know, when a government falls under attack. Yeah, yeah, I guess. So there's a bit of a conversation. So there's a conversation going on at the moment uh, in industry and also in government where, you know, I think with the Ukraine war, it's really kind of shined a light on it in the sense of, you know, where does the responsibility lie when it comes to nation state based attacks, you know, and and particularly if you have cloud infrastructure, it adds an extra level here. So, you know, is it the government's responsibility to make sure nation states are not attacking? Is it the industry's responsibility to make sure their own infrastructure is secure? Is it the cloud service provider's responsibility or even the managed service provider's responsibility to make sure that they're reporting, uh, you know, any kind of potential activity they're seeing either to customers and or the government as well? And so there's this kind of three-way responsibility model almost of, you know, uh, who is responsible or is it shared? And where do those lines kind of, where are those lines drawn? Um, and so I think that's some, that's a bit of a discussion that's going on at the moment. I don't necessarily have the answers, but it definitely is a shared model. You know, everybody has a part to play. And I think the one thing we're probably missing at the moment is a bit of guidance on, uh, or a bit of discussion, which leads to guidance, I should say, and leads to a framework maybe of, um, you know, what's the responsibility of the government, what's the responsibility of providers, so your service providers, cloud providers, SaaS providers, et cetera, and, you know, what's the responsibility of you as an organization, particularly when you're coming up against a more advanced threat such as uh, nation-state activity. And I'm wondering if this gets into international treaties or discussions, because basically you're crossing borders at this point. I know, right? I guess it's probably why we haven't done it yet. It's so hard. It's such a hard thing to do. And to get something agreed cross-border level would be a hard thing to do. I guess, you know, in the first instance, you would probably need to start with like-minded governments um, or or even local, like you're in at national level first, and then look at seeing how you can branch out. I think if you tried to do it at a global level, we'd just end up spinning our wheels a little bit. But I think if we, you know, if we collaborated with all the, you know, key service providers, all the key cloud providers, uh, government and and industry all together, then, you know, at least all the kind of regulated industries, then, you know, that's a good starting point and kind of go from there. But it's an interesting one because there's a lot of shifting of blame, you know, like it's, oh, it's not my environment or, oh, it's state sponsored. So therefore, you know, it was sophisticated. Let me tell you, a lot of state-sponsored attacks are not necessarily sophisticated. A lot of the criminal ones that actually tend to be a bit more sophisticated. Um, not to say there isn't sophisticated ones, but more often than not, you know, why why use, you know, um, your your hottest, um, you know, technology to compromise someone if you don't need it, right? So, you know, that would just be giving away your hand and they don't need to use the latest and greatest things. Um, and so, yeah, so I think, you know, from an international standpoint, we're way off, uh, I think, on that. But, 
you know, let's start nationally first. Um, then there may be like-minded governments can link up on that front. Um, and really it's about an open dialogue between industry and, and the government, I think at the end of the day. Are there any governments that are currently setting good practices in the cloud? I think the, I think the U S government is being very shouty, like in, in, this kind of domain right now. And I think it's, I think that's great. I, I think it's causing a lot of discussion, a lot of people having a bit of food for thought. I mean, the government is, is, you know, right to say, you know, industry needs to do more. Um, you know, they, you know, the U S government can't necessarily solve all the problems. They can't just have a silver bullet or a magic button, which, you know, automatically defends everybody. That's not realistic. And, you know, that's, that's, you know, bad security practice just to rely on that. So, you know, so I think, um, you know, I think it's great that they're putting a little bit of pressure on industry um, to improve things. You know, let me let me give you a practical example of my my past. Right. So UK in the UK before GDPR came along. Um, so that's the data protection regulation that was uh, pushed out across Europe for, for those that aren't aware of it. Um, we had uh, the Information Commissioner's Office in the UK, and they were responsible for, you know, for PII breaches. So that's breaches of personally identifiable information. And um, the maximum fine you could get uh, for a company before GDPR came out was £500,000. Um, now, you know, when you've got a company making, you know, <laughs> billions, right, you know, a fine of half a million pounds is not necessarily enough. And, and in all honesty, I, I talked to one company once and they were like, well, okay, so you want us to invest in, you know, 10 million, let's just use a random figure, but it was, you know, something like this, 10 million pounds, right, into cybersecurity. But if we don't and something does happen, I only get a fine of 500,000 pounds. Like where's the investment trade-off other than reputational risk and harm, you know, Obviously, that's that's one that's hard to quantify into a value figure. Um, but, you know, now that those big fines are coming across and government's been involved and, you know, is putting more onus on industry to secure themselves, I've seen a huge spike in, like, security posture across industries. They're still not there yet, but, like, I've seen a huge improvement across security because that regulation came out. And so, you know, I think these are, you know, with the US government kind of standing up and, and shouting about it a little bit more, I think, you know, we need to put a few things in writing, um, you know, as far as kind of regulation is concerned, or at least industries of concern or national significance, you know, that will help change the mindset of, of security because, you know, people need to see security as an investment, not necessarily something that's just taking away from, you know, the purse, so to say. So, um, you know, we need to, we need to see it as an investment rather than just to spend. James's recommendation is to start locally within a country and then perhaps within the EU, and then perhaps branch out into the world. Uh, start smaller is always better. Uh, I think if you, we bite off too much, it's going to get too complicated, take too many years. And then, you know, I think as part of that conversation, you know, the big providers need to be involved, like your Microsofts, your your Amazons, uh, your Googles, etc. The big players need to be involved in that conversation. And you know, they they have more visibility and honesty than most governments, and you know, they have. Um, you know, they can make a big change themselves in getting involved in those conversations. So I think uh, that would be good to see. And you also have the related question of where the data physically lives. So having server farms in, say, a questionable country, as opposed to one you know, that is a friendly country, that can be a problem in and of itself. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I think 
I don't know how many regions there are in AWS off the top of my head, but there's a lot. Um, and they also have their own instance for China as well. So for data region in China, because the Chinese government has um, some extra rules and regulations around, you know, how to uh, handle data in, in China. And so, um, you know, it does add an extra level of complexity there. Um, but you're right as well, because, you know, if you think of how many data regions there are, um, it's still all managed by one company. Uh, and so and it's all, you know, all accessed through the same portal, so to say. Uh, and so, yeah, it's, um, it's a, it's a tricky one. I think, um, I think it's, it is great that it is, you know, you can quite easily set up, um, different data regions to handle data appropriately, but, um, yeah, you're right at the end of the day, it's, uh, you'll have these big companies that do have access still to all those data regions in kind of a few clicks of a button, so to say, so, um, where they physically lie is, yeah, it's it's important, but it's um, you know you do have to be careful when it comes to cloud and making sure that you don't cross those boundaries or borders um, accidentally because it's quite easy to do. So, what are some of the best practices with data and cloud security? Yeah, so um, really, it's about understanding how you're going to use cloud, um, what's in your cloud, and you know where where your gaps lie, and so. You need to think about the end-to-end -end when it comes to security in your cloud. So it's not just, you know, you've got your prevention, you've got your detection, you know, but then it's like, okay, I've detected something. What do I do next? Like, how do I actually investigate what happened? You know, is this something I should care about? How do I stand up in front of an auditor and put my hand on my heart and say, we did enough to say this was not a big deal, or we did enough to say this was a big deal, but we mitigated it. And how do you kind of put your hand on your heart and say that? And so that's one of the bits that I think a lot of customers are missing. It's kind of they're doing that prevention piece, they're doing detection piece, but they haven't moved on to the investigation and the response phase. So um, and so there's a big kind of gap there. And I think part of that is is just the you know the the maturity of the market and understanding how cloud works and the technologies there. And it's been improving, but um, it's happening a lot slower than people are adopting cloud. So the gap or the divide, so to say, between your ability to actually understand what's happening in your cloud environment is, is actually getting bigger, not smaller. So um, that's something that uh, I'd ask people to think about is, you know, how do I do an end-to-end -end thing? It's not just about prevention detection. Something will get through. I can guarantee you that. Like, hand on heart, I'll buy you a beer if it doesn't. But something will get through eventually. And, you know, you need to know how do you... How do you investigate that and make sure you're responding in and accordingly based off what's happened? I'd like to thank James Campbell for coming on The Hacker Mind to talk about his experience both in incidents response in the past and how it is changing for more and more organizations as they move to the cloud today. Hey, if you enjoy this podcast, tell a friend. I bet there are others who like commercial-free narrative infosec podcasts. I have so many stories about hackers who are making a positive difference in the world. And be sure to check out Error Code, my new podcast that focuses on IoT and embedded security. Error Code is available now wherever you get your podcasts. Let's keep this conversation going. DM me at robertvamosi at infosec.exchange on Mastodon or at robertvamosi on Twitter. And tell me what you like and even what you don't. The Hacker Mine is brought to you commercial-free by For All Secure. For The Hacker Mine, I'm Robert Famosi.